Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and joining us once again is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States to continue our discussion of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And today we're looking at Revelation 3. Fascinating stuff. Alistair, hi and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. Oh, look, it's an honor and a pleasure. Now, how do the letters to the seven churches connect back with the seven days of creation? I know we dealt with this last time, and indeed the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament. So as we go through the letters, we can see some things that would seem to resonate with the days of creation. That is something that is more pronounced on certain days than on others. And some days seem to have a connection, but we might need to fill it out a little. So the first day of creation is, and here we can think about the days of creation as they're described in Genesis chapter one, but also as the days of creation pattern is followed in the construction of the tabernacle in two cycles in Exodus chapter 25 to 31. So the first day is associated with the tree of life and also with the lampstand and other things like that in Exodus chapter 25. Here, it's connected with Christ as the light bearer. He's the one with the seven stars in his hand. The second day, we might think about the division between the firmament and the creation of the structure of the tabernacle in Exodus. Here, that connection is far less pronounced, and it would seem maybe the division between death and life and something like that. The third day, the vision of land and sea, it's the creation of the um, courtyard of the tabernacle and the bronze altar and the bronze laver. And it's also the vegetation. Here it's associated with stones, with manna. And then the fourth day, heavenly lights. It's associated with the sun, moon and stars. It's associated with the lights for the lamp or the oil for the lamps and the oil for the priests. So both of those things which create light and moral and physical within the um, holy place. And here, the Son of God is described as one with fiery eyes, which would seem to hark back to that detail. Fifth day is associated with the creation of the fish, but also with the priest's garments and with the incense, the clouds, as it were, within which they move. And here, the garments of those in Sardis would seem to have some sort of connection with that. It seems to be a good fit. In the sixth, we have the formation of humanity, of course, and the sixth day of creation and the beasts. Um, it's also associated with the establishment of the, high of the priests within their ministry in the book of Exodus. And here it's associated with being crowned, placed within the tabernacle or temple, etc. And so there would seem to be a nice connection there. The seventh day, of course, rest and Sabbath and the promise of sitting in rest with Christ on his throne and eating in the wedding feast. Again, nice connections there. Now, the next church, uh, next of the seven churches is Sardis. Now, we've seen in the last episode how as we progress through the letters, we progress through the whole history of Israel and the Old Testament effectively, don't we? I wonder how this letter connects with the late monarchy and exilic period. Yeah, so at this point, we've gone through four of the letters. The first brings themes that remind us of the 
original creation, you have the paradise of God, you have the tree of life, it's Eden. And then the next one is being thrown into prison and tested before receiving a crown of life. It's the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. Reminders of Balaam and Balak in the third letter and the promise of the hidden manna. It's the wilderness period. And then the next is Jezebel, the promise of ruling over the nations with a rod of iron. It's the Davidic kingdom. It's the period prior to the exile. The exilic period, the exile and return, would seem to be connected with the soiled garments. You can think about the garments of the high priest in the book of Zechariah, Joshua the high priest, that they are clothed. They're going to be clothed in white garments. And it's the same thing that you see with Joshua the high priest in the vision of Zechariah. And so we can move further on. You have the restoration of the temple pillar in the rebuilt temple of God. Um, Eliakim is described as one opening doors. You have the same sort of element here. The one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut. This is, again, themes of restoration. Um, and then finally, the Israelites of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and others who are unable to recognize their blindness and their nakedness. And so we have some sort of um, covenant history and miniature within the letters of the churches, as James Jordan and others have argued. Why is Jesus described here the way he is? Because the description of Jesus in each of the letters is also significant, isn't it? Yes, each one of the letters picks up some elements of the original vision that we have in chapter one. And also they look forward to things that we find later on in the book. And so the book of Revelation is densely interrelated. The letters really carry together a number of threads. They connect with the Gospel of John. They connect with the end of Revelation. They connect with the opening vision. They connect with the covenant history. And as we're reading them carefully, we will be able to discern their meaning more effectively as we see these sorts of connections. Here, Christ is described as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. As we go through this, we can maybe think of the ways that there are analogies that connect different objects. So the seven spirits of God in the higher heavens, as it were, connected with the seven stars in the celestial heavens. We can think then of the the ways that the lights of the lampstand are connected with that, the seven lampstands and the seven churches. And so as we're moving through, we can see on each level, there is some sort of analogy with the higher level above it. What's the problem with the pastor at Sardis? Yes, he's not awake and he's not alert to the fact that things are about to perish. And so there's a very significant warning here. This is not as um, serious as you find in the first and last letters, but it is a very serious warning that he has to get on top of things because um, Christ is going to come like a thief in the night. So these are, again, warnings that might alert us to parallels between what's happen happening here and the Olivet Discourse um, back in places like Matthew chapter 24 to 25. And so the idea of Christ coming as a thief in the night is not something that's unique to Revelation. It's something that we find within the Gospels too. And that warning to be awake, to be alert, 
We see that, of course, in the Olivet Discourse, in places like Matthew and Luke. And we also see it as Christ speaks to his disciples in Gethsemane and watch and pray lest you enter into temptation or into the tribulation. There's a sort of apocalypse in miniature playing out within the events of the crucifixion and Gethsemane. And so what we're seeing here is, again, those themes coming to the surface. What sort of rewards, I wonder, does the Lord Jesus promise here to the pastor and presumably also by extension to the church? The rewards here are being clothed in white garments and having one's name in the book of life and not being blotted out. Again, these are things that are picked up later on within the book of Revelation. So in chapter 19, verse 14 and 20, verse 12, you have the armies in heaven, they're dressed in white linen, and then the book of life being opened and those who have their name within it being received. So these are things that again will be picked up later these rewards tend to look forward to the later visions now philadelphia is an interesting uh church an interesting pastor too what, what's the key of david that jesus has here in chapter 3 verse 7 so if we look back in the book of isaiah we have um, that image used for eliakim he has this key here the key of david would seem to have connections with Isaiah 22, also with the way that um, Cyrus is the one who opens doors as we go through the book. He is the one who creates this new order following the, the exile. And so this authority, as it were, which maybe could be connected with the power to bind and loose that we see elsewhere, a sort of prophetic authority, a prophetic authority to establish a new situation. Again, think back to the initiation of um, Jeremiah. He's to build and to uproot, to plant and to um, destroy. So they, these themes are ones that maybe could be connected with the key here. Now, what's Philadelphia urged to do? Yes, Philadelphia is their charge to um, take the open door that's set before them. And they are faced with the threat of the synagogue of Satan. They have, whether that is ethnic Israel or some other group, they face a lot of opposition. And so they have to be those who hold fast, who endure, who abide this sort of persecution and this resist this false teaching until Christ returns. What's the part of uh, Israel's history that this letter relates to then as we travel through the history of the Old Testament and these letters? So if we're going to take that connection with um, the Key of David and the restoration period with Cyrus, it would seem to be related to the establishment of the temple again. So it's a similar period of time to the preceding letter, which connects with Zechariah and the white garments of the high priest. Here it talks about the um, writing of his name, writing on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, being made a pillar in the temple of my God. This might be the new temple, the temple that's rebuilt after the exile. 
Mm. I was going to ask you, you probably already answered it, why does Jesus promise to give those who conquer the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name? There's a lot of naming that goes on in Revelation, isn't there? There is. And whether it's names being written in particular books or whether it's names being written upon um, particular objects like the stone with the person's name written upon it that no one else knows, or the names that we see here, um, all of these things might make us think about some significant names that we find elsewhere in scripture, the ways that things are connected with names more generally. So names might be connected with stones as places of burial. We think of the book of Revelation as a book, among other things, of martyrdom. And so those who's, who have stones, as it were, as the foundation of something, maybe it's their death, their faithful martyrdom that provides a foundation. And we might also think about the name that is borne by the high priest, holy to the Lord, the ways that the names of Israel are written upon the garments of the high priest. In all of these ways, those sorts of connections would seem to stand out. We might also think about the connections with the names written here and names later on that are seen in the book of life in the end of Revelation. And so connections again with the beginning and the opening visions, letters to the churches and the final great vision at the end of the book. Okay, we come to Laodicea. Now, do we move here into the intertestamental period in terms of the references in the letter? The reference to Laodicea as um, being blind and failing to recognize their condition. Um, Jordan, I think, connects this with the period of the Gospels and the failure of the, of the Pharisees and others to recognize their situation. This is the situation to which Christ comes. So it would be that situation that's created through the intertestamental period. Um, so that is one way of reading it. Why is the Lord Jesus described here as the Amen, the faithful and true witness? There's our witness theme again. Very important, isn't it? And the beginning of God's creation. Yes, this is, again, picking up language of the original opening vision. In verse 5, um, Jesus there is described as the faithful witness. He's the confirmation of all of God's speech. So we can think places like 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so Jesus is also described in a way that maybe alludes to things like the great hymn of um, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. The different senses of those opening words of the scriptures in the beginning that Paul unpacks in various ways, showing the way that Christ is before all things, Christ is above all things, Christ is the one who's the firstborn, etc. And this helps us to understand the different ways, forms of Christ's preeminence. And here we have something similar. Now, what's the problem with this pastor of this particular church? I should also add that there's something about the way that Christ is presented here that maybe um, suggests he is the comprehensive word of God. He's the amen. He's the final word confirming everything that goes before. He's the beginning of God's creation. He's the first word from which everything proceeds. And he's the faithful and true witness, every word in between. And so he's the summing up of all things. And these titles also, it's worth noting the ways that some of these titles are ones applied directly to God within 
the Old Testament, the first and the last, for instance, that we've seen earlier on. These are strong arguments for the deity of Christ if you know your Bible well. The mm. sort of allusions being made here to Old Testament scriptures present Christ as one who bears divine titles, not just great titles of a great messianic king or something like that. These are divine titles. Yes, fascinating, isn't it? So what are the problems with this particular pastor then? Yes, they are one of the two <clears throat> churches that really stands in the most critical danger. They're described as lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and there is... a threat of them being spat out of Christ's mouth. There is a sort of rejection of them, a complete rejection of them that they that they risk. And what ways does this letter have Sabbath connections, being the seventh, the seventh letter to the seventh church? We got some Sabbath connections there? Yes. So the um theme of standing at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And um, that would seem to allude to the wedding feast that we find later on, sabbatical themes. Sitting down, again, sitting down upon the throne, this is the Sabbath rest that we find at the end. Those sorts of things, it seems to me, would allude to Sabbath or connect with the theme of Sabbath more broadly. Okay, what does Jesus urge this pastor or and all this church to do then? Well, they're called to buy the gold that they need so that they might be rich and white garments to clothe themselves and deal with their nakedness and that they need to answer the door and hear the voice. Now, we might see in these sorts of statements, allusions back to various parts of the Old Testament scriptures, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters in um, Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 and following the promise of the sure love for David, this everlasting covenant. You might also think of the way that the woman in the Song of Songs is called to open the door and she hears the knocking and she is not, she hasn't put on her garment. She's not ready. And so she fails to answer until it's too late and she misses her beloved. Here we have that sort of warning do not be in that position. And so we've had the thief in the night earlier on. Here we have the bridegroom who stands at the door and knocks. We have those images also in the wise and foolish virgins who hear the voice of the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 25. We might also think of the ways that some of these things connect back to John's gospel, the one who hears the voice of the bridegroom, or the way in which there is, Warren Gage also suggests that Peter's nakedness and the conversation with Peter might also um, relate to some of these things mm. um, that we find within this letter. You probably already answered it partly, but I wonder how the conclusion of the seven letters refers back to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon seems to be referred to throughout the book of Revelation quite often, surprisingly so, or maybe not surprisingly so, actually. Yes. So we've already noted in our treatment of chapter one that there are Wasif type character, there's a Wasif type character to the description of Christ. A Wasif is this description from head to toe or from toe to head, or these descriptions of different features of someone who's being um, celebrated. So if we go back to the book of Song of Songs, we can see several such Wasifs used of the bride and the bridegroom. Here we have in chapter one, this great description of Christ in his glory 
alluding back to Daniel chapter 10, for instance, and it's a great wasif. Here we have the maybe allusion to the bridegroom knocking at the door and the bride failing to answer and then searching for him. Now, of course, remember that this is something that we find throughout the book of John. Christ is presented as the bridegroom at the beginning of Revelation. He's also the bridegroom in John. He's the one who is who begins his ministry at a wedding feast. He will end his ministry. His ministry will reach its climax at the end of Revelation at a wedding feast. We have all these different scenes that connect Christ with the bridegroom. He is the one who is greeted by the friend of the bridegroom, who hears the bridegroom's voice and rejoices. We have the encounter with the woman at the well. We have the ways that um, he stands for the, the woman who's accused of adultery. We can see the way that he picks up themes or themes of the um, Song of Songs are picked up in chapter 12 when the king was on his couch, my nod gave forth its fragrance, as is described in the first chapter of the song. In that chapter, Mary um, anoints Jesus' feet and the scent of her nod fills the whole house with its fragrance. Later on, we have the encounter of Mary Magdalene with Christ in the garden. And Christ is buried in a garden tomb that's scented with myrrh and aloes. And the chamber is opened up later on and it gives forth its fragrance. The water flows out. These are all things that we find within the Song of Songs, the garden chamber that from which living water flows, from which the scented breeze will come forth. And then we also have the woman searching in vain to find her beloved. Mm. And then finally finding him within the garden among the lilies. And this is something that we see in the description of Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, meeting with Christ in the garden. It's again a sort of return to the Garden of Eden. Christ is mistaken for the gardener, but it's also the Song of Songs themes playing out there. Revelation picks up the same thing. We see throughout the book ways in which John wants us to think back to the Song of Songs and to see Christ as the bridegroom coming for his bride. And then the book of Revelation ends on a very similar note to the Song of Songs. Come quickly on the um, mountains, like a gazelle on the mountains of spices. And we have something very similar at the end of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, the spirit and the bride say come. And there is this summons to the bridegroom to hasten his arrival. Now, all of this presents us with a frame or a way of understanding what is taking place. The bridegroom is coming for the bride. The book is pervaded by the desire of the bridegroom for his bride and the desire of the bride for her bridegroom. And this is something that gives the sense of ex expectancy and longing and communion that should pervade the life of the church. Now, as we go to the letter to Laodicea, we can see that there is something deeply lacking here, which is that desire. Christ has come for his bride. He is the bridegroom, and she should want fellowship with him. And yet we see that the failure of her love means that she is not ready for the bridegroom. She's like the foolish virgin that we see in um, the foolish virgins of um, chapter 25 of Matthew. They mm. are supposed to come out with their lamps burning. And here we have a light that's about to be lost. And so that warning is one that could be read against within a large resonance chamber of scripture. And I think particularly the Song of Psalms. 
Yes, wow, it's amazing, isn't it? So much as we as we work through, it's it's incredible. Uh, Dr. Alistair Roberts, once again, thank you so much from the Theopolis Institute in the States, and we were talking about Revelation 3. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, once again, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be with you again. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.